This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In the last couple of decades, we have seen the growth of many business sectors. But the ability of businesses to keep this growth going has been lacking in many cases. So are there some missing elements to sustainable growth that companies just can't grasp? Leonard Sherman is an adjunct professor of marketing and management at Columbia University. He takes a look at this issue in his book, If You're in a Dogfight, If You're in a Dogfight, Become a Cat. Leonard, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I guess I got to start with the title because that's the one that, that, that obviously draws people in right off the bat. Uh, well, you know, it was never supposed to be the title. Okay. Uh, it was a working title, and it's, uh, it comes uh, from a metaphor I've used in my class over the years. Um, and as I was writing the book, I just sort of said, well, I, I've used this catchphrase, and uh, I'll just put it as a working title. Um, uh, title for now. And then when it came time for publication, the book just came out two weeks ago. Um, but uh, when we got near publication, my publisher said, uh, well, we love the title. And I said, no, 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 I, I'm going to give it some boring, serious business kind of title. <laughs> right. And um, they said, no, we, 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 we think this is the one and you should do it. So I put the uh, question to my class the next week. You know, I've got this boring title. I didn't qualify it that way. And I had this one. And uh, the Students spoke. So here we are with a, a curious title. Well, but it is interesting that, that you do kind of uh, link the fact that cats have certain kind of characteristics that, to a degree, some businesses should probably think about. Yeah, and the whole uh, title, but the whole premise of the book uh, behind it is you know, I spent most of my career as a management consultant, and granted, as a management consultant, you most often work with troubled firms that are struggling with growth or profitability or both. So, um, But nonetheless, I got to see over many decades some very common uh, problems and, and that, that led to stalled growth or, or worse. And uh, the, the metaphor I, I uh, use with the, uh, dogs and dog fights is way too often I found my clients more concerned with looking over their shoulders at their competitors and getting involved in this kind of tit-for-tat replication of fun- functions and features. And, yeah. and that's a non-winnable arms race where everyone's kind of just matching each other and you wind up with this competitive blur. You know, United Airlines is not viewed and perceived as being different than American or Delta, Crest or Colgate toothpaste. Everyone kind of adds a feature that quickly gets matched. And that's kind of the, the way dogs kind of scratch and claw uh, for territorial dominance, you know, cats are these kind of solitary hunters who kind of go off and change the rules on their own and find their own space. And uh, over my career, the most successful firms, at least in achieving what I call the holy grail of business, long-term profitable growth, uh, act more like cats, which is they change the rules uh, uh, and, and fundamentally uh, uh, create entirely new value propositions that are valued and rewarded by their customers. And part of that is you talk about innovation being a, a, a kind of a, a key ingredient to this. And, and obviously a lot of companies say that they are great innovators and, and look to innovate. Uh, but I guess there are times when they're not. And it's it's this level of innovation that you talk about that ends up being somewhat of a differentiating point. 
Uh, sure. And uh, the, the, the basic prescription uh, I offer in my book is that uh, if you look at the firms that have achieved long-term profitable growth, and I'm talking about firms like uh, IKEA and FedEx and Starbucks and Netflix and Amazon, of course, and Apple, uh, they all have in common three traits. You know, one is continuous innovation, right. not, not for its own sake, but to drive meaningful differentiation. Right. Again, this cat-like behavior that says we're not going to be just a Me Too product. And all of that is supported by uh, a business alignment where their culture and incentives and uh, mindset uh, are all oriented towards this continuous renewal uh, of their product line. Now, it sounds almost commonsensical. Who wouldn't want to innovate and do meaningfully different products? But it's actually much more devilishly difficult to do um, than uh, the prescription might sound. Leonard Sherman is our guest. He is the author of the book, If You're in a Dogfight, Become a Cat, Strategies for Long-Term Growth. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. You mentioned all of these companies, but I'm guessing there there are probably common themes for companies that do find growth but are not able to to keep it going, to sustain that growth, correct? Uh, that's correct, and that's because uh, large corporations are heavily inclined and incentivized to kind of protect their current core business. Uh, and it is very, very hard to overcome this this fear of cannibalization and this sense, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it, and you can't argue with success. So far too many companies kind of ride the classic product life cycle curve that we've all seen in business schools, you know, go through high growth and the maturity. Right. Uh, but, hey, on, on that right-hand side of that product life cycle is, uh, is decline. And uh, by the time, too often, by the time companies realize that they've gone even beyond maturity into the decline stage, uh, it's too late because others have seen the opportunities that your company wasn't willing to pursue. Some of the companies that that you bring up, I I wanted to delve into them a couple, especially a couple of ones that that have struggled in the past. Uh, One is BlackBerry, uh, which obviously, if you go back 20 years, was a was a a very popular. Well, not 20 years, but, you know, they they were at one point a pretty popular smartphone or, uh, you know, cell phone company. Sure. And obviously they have totally fallen off of that spectrum and are now more a software entity. And the other is is JCPenney, which is in the middle of a whole sector, which is just struggling right now. That that retail sector, especially the big box store. Yeah, and I um, that's right. I, I actually would uh, say there were slightly different um characteristics of sure, yeah. those companies. But, yeah. you know, you don't have to go back very far with this start with BlackBerry. Uh, you only have to go back to 2006, which is the year before the iPhone was introduced. So yeah. uh, from the turn of the current century to 2006, BlackBerry was just a phenomenal company. And uh, the envy of the world, including Steve Jobs, I mean, BlackBerry was earning return on assets of over 30%. And the, and the U.S. government as well. There you go. So who wouldn't want to get into that business? Right. Uh, you know, unfortunately, they, uh, for some of the reasons I mentioned before, just couldn't get beyond just sitting on what had made them so great for so long. We right. have this ultra-secure, keyboard-oriented, sort of great for enterprises, and they missed the whole uh, consumer market and the potential that Steve Jobs saw in a uh, sort of computer in your pocket. So uh, 
it's kind of scary how fast you can fall off the backside of your product life cycle in the technology oh, space, because yeah. that's uh, certainly what happened to them. J.C. Penney, you know, it's kind of almost the opposite uh, when Ron Johnson came over from yeah. Apple Retail, where he had done such a great job. Uh, he made the just classic management mistake of thinking he knew better than his customers, kind of the, the, the Apple thing. We know what our customers want even before they do. Uh, he thought he knew what J.C. Penney's customers uh, wanted, other than what they had been given for the last hundred years. He did this radical transformation that everything we've stood for for over a century, gone. This is the yeah. new J.C. Penney, fair and square. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, he learned the hard way that uh, might have been a great idea in his mind, but not for his consumers. So uh, you obviously have to find the right balance and vet your ideas. Uh, making up your own rules is one thing, but you better make sure that they're appealing. Well, what do you think are, are the future for the, for those two? And and obviously, as I said, uh, that BlackBerry has made the shift into more being a software company now. So th- there's obviously a, a, a room for growth in that area for them. Sure. JCPenney, it, it's not like they can really remake who they are anymore. The, the, the only option is probably a, a bankruptcy filing down the road. Uh. Yeah, and they won't be the first uh, or last. Uh, you know, it may be too little too late. The right. whole uh, brick-and-mortar retail sector, particularly the mall-oriented uh, part of that, like the JCPenney's, is uh, in a world of hurt right now. Uh, and I, I, uh, I, I think th- there are opportunities for some companies to continually refresh and renew themselves, but in their case, it may be they're going to have to go outside of that space and create some new forms of retailing that are, you know, very different than what they are today. But right. um, uh, they, they certainly uh, are in a world of hurt. Uh, Leonard Sherman is our guest. Uh, he is the author of the book, uh, If You're in a Dogfight, Become a Cat, Strategies for Long-Term Growth. You're more than welcome to join in and ask a question or give a comment. 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. A couple of interesting areas I'd like you to delve into. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how much of an effect uh, for this sustainable growth, especially for some of these companies, are the startup industry and, and small business? Because it, to a degree, they are feeders to, to these companies. Uh, and, and then also about the role of the government and the regulation uh, that a lot of these companies may see and the impact that that has had uh, in this country. And obviously, that's a big, important topic right now. Yeah. Well, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, too often we've seen uh, kind of the, the Davids come in and slay Goliaths, and that's just the, uh, you know, yet another example of what can and often does happen to companies that uh, – get complacent and, and sit on their current products. Uh, it's an upstart newcomer that comes in and, and uh, shakes it up. Uh, you know, two points of that. Number one, um, it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, Goliath, you know, in the famous book uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, David and Goliath, where he presents this alternative view that actually it was Goliath who was the underdog and David should have been the favorite because Goliaths are ponderous and they're oafs and they don't move very fast. Uh, but large corporations don't have to be ponderous oafs. They can be agile. They can uh, continue to innovate. Uh, and it's not only the, the startups that own that space. And, you know, at a give it Exhibit A, probably the, the greatest growth uh, 
company of our lifetimes is Amazon, who set the yep. all-time record zero to $100 billion uh, faster than anyone. They're now at 127 and, and still growing at 27, 30% a year. Um, they have constant experimentation going on for all phases of their business, you know, near-term, uh, just continuous improvement type things, and longer-term, uh, fundamentally changing the business. Uh, they're really the role model of a large company that can continue to innovate. Having said that, uh, it's an entirely feasible and often desirable uh, way to continue to, to grow through innovation for large companies to selectively acquire yeah. you know, startups that have great ideas, but it would be great to scale those in, inside a larger enterprise with lots of resources to bring to bear. All of the above would clearly benefit from having less restrictive regulation, and we'll see over the next few years whether um, the regulation reform that we've been hearing about uh, is as helpful as um, our current president hopes it can be. But one of the things you do uh, seemingly are, are very much a, a believer in and, and believe it's a necessity is, is the con- customer-centric path that companies really have to take. And, and if you're not doing that, you're, you're unbe- doing an unbelievable disservice to not only your company, but the, the consumers that may follow your company. Yeah, and I think this, uh, this notion really often gets short shrift in the business community, this notion uh, that a company that genuinely has a customer-centric purpose, you know, what is our purpose? Why are we, why are we in business? What are we trying to accomplish? And if you read the mission statements of just about any company, they always say, oh, you know, our customer satisfaction is our, our highest priority and, you know, we love our employees and all this kind of good stuff. But at the end of the day, if you look at the companies that have been posting the most impressive profitable growth track records over the last 20 years, those are the companies that walk the talk, that actually do embrace this obsession with delivering a superior customer service at the heart of who they are and why they're in business. And they put in policies uh, that actually make that come alive, whether it's Amazon or JetBlue or Costco or or, um, FedEx, you name it. Um, Too often, companies confuse what they're purpose is with what their outcome wants to be. So companies that get totally obsessed with, you know, we want to maximize shareholder value as our number one priority or be the biggest, strongest company in the world, uh, then you start to lose sight of, you know, your business priorities and maybe even your moral compass. So when the CEO of Volkswagen says, we are going to be the biggest, most profitable car company in the world, and no matter what, that's what we're going to achieve, that sets the 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 trap for letting the ends justify the means and we right. saw what happened to Volkswagen I've never heard Steve Jobs or Tim Cook say I am going to be the most valuable company in the world it right. just happened to work that way uh, amongst the companies that that you say have done a, a good job of it, the one that I wanted to touch on which I I, I guess it caught me off guard was IKEA yeah. Uh, and, and why is it that you think that they have done such a good job? Because when I, I think that obviously they are they're a, a pretty good sized player in this country, but they don't seem like they have you know they have reached an unbelievably high status. Maybe that's just me. I don't shop there, but you know that could be part of it as well. <laughs> Well, you know, they're a, a $40 billion, 75-year uh, company that has uh, been consistently profitable and self-funding 
uh, privately owned company with a squeaky clean balance sheet um, that is one of the strongest and most beloved uh, brands around the entire world, one of the few brands that can operate in a consistent fashion, whether you're in Singapore or Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, just down the block from where you live, where yep. U.S. headquarters are. Yep. So uh, they, they have a lot to feel awfully proud about. And I will say that there's an example of a company that set forth a crystal clear customer-centric corporate purpose, which is to say, you know, it's very easy to build beautiful furniture uh, that costs a lot of money. It's a lot harder to build very functional and stylish furniture that is affordable by virtually everyone. And right. we will commit ourselves 75 years ago and today and everything in between to, to that purpose. And for those people, I don't shop there either. For those people right. who find that value proposition uh, very appealing, uh, they have been a consistent, reliable go-to corporation for a long time. I have some issues with their future growth potential. They've been a guest speaker in my class many times, but right. that's a story for another day, maybe. Well, but, but you have also talked about in this um, about the fact that uh, there are companies that have you know, have not have had a trouble, uh, have had trouble figuring this out. But all of a sudden, they I guess they've made changes within their structure and what they believe, and they have kind of gotten this this sustainable growth going. Sure, um, it, it, it's it's never too late to start. I mean, the 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 general prescription. This is what I call this devilishly difficult gen, um, general prescription of continuous innovation to deliver meaningful differentiation and organizing yourself to be able to do that as a matter of course um, is is appropriate no matter what stage of development you're in. And um, you know, some companies have gotten it right from the beginning and and benefited, but there's no reason you you can't turn to that. You know, as long as I mentioned the IKEA thing. They are late to the game getting a world-class e-commerce supplement to their big box store format going. Right. And, um, you know, fortunately they have a strong enough core business that uh, it's not going to kill them. But it, I, I would have argued they should have been where they will be two years from now, five years ago. So, Well, what, one of the companies you mentioned in there is, is Yellowtail. Yeah. And, and, what is, and what is it about them that, that they have done so well? They... Um, <clears throat> Uh, did something that's very smart and very cat-like, to use the title of my book, in that they entered a essentially a terrible business. I mean, imagine trying to enter a business as a totally unknown, small little vineyard that operates out of southeastern Australia, never sold in the United States before, and they're entering a market with you know almost 10,000 distinct labels that no one could tell apart. No one knows the brand names. There's no brand allegiance, and no one can tell the taste difference between most of the wines that are on the shelf. Uh, it's, how, do you, how do you break into that market? And the brilliant thing that Yellowtail did, the cat-like thing, is to say, hey, 85% of American drinking age adults don't drink wine. Right. They drink beer, they drink spirits, they don't drink any alcoholic beverages. Yeah. We're we're just going to ignore the 15% of the market that is already kind of wine snobs and have their behavioral patterns in place and we're going to sort of go after every man, every woman who is more interested in drinking soda pop than they are wine and make a kind of fun, approachable, non-pretentious uh, affordable casual, everyday wine, and we're not going to take ourselves too seriously. And it's just amazing, the, the wine 
industry is one of the oldest industries in the world, goes back to biblical times, uh, that no one had figured out that there, there's this huge latent demand of folks that said, hey, just make it easy and fun. Uh, so they set the all-time record to go from zero to eight million cases of wine in the U.S. market in about four years, which well, was astonishing. And, and you have, uh, I think you have a, a, a good segment of, of the wine companies out there that are trying to do that. I, I think they are trying to make it more of a fun proposition and not yes. make it the highfalutin, snooty kind of you know wine drinker that, that a lot of people have associated it with over the last 50, 60 years. Well, uh, that's right. And in fact, uh, since Yellowtail achieved its astonishing success. They entered the U.S. market there in 2001, uh, and they had that kind of segment pretty much to themselves for five years when they took off like a rocket ship. But, yeah. uh, you know, once again, the one thing you could be sure of is when you're successful, everyone's going to come after you, and they have. And, in fact, there's another casual everyday wine being sold in the U.S. that's now twice as big as Yellowtail yeah. uh, is. So um, that's the big question. I have a case on Yellowtail coming up later this semester. What's their next trick? You know, they're doing great. They're still selling at that $8 million level. But what do they do to re-energize growth? And it's hopefully we'll find that out when we have our case discussion. Are, are there sectors uh, of the economy right now where uh, we're – we see sustained growth, and maybe it's it's companies within that sector that that you just see sustained growth, and maybe there are even ones that are kind of on the edge, ready to to make that sustained growth that maybe not have been there in the last few years. You know, um, y y yes, but um, rather than sort of say here's the three or four hot sectors, uh, I'd rather take the contrarian position in answering your question, which to say that I. Um, uh, the second chapter of my book that actually talks about Yellowtail is titled uh, There's No Such Thing as a Bad Industry. And it yeah. is, you see this particularly in business schools as the MBAs are getting close to graduation, sort of very anxious about, am I going to get that great job in, in this great industry? And they're all trying to sort of game the system to say, what's going to be that hot industry? And I want to get into that industry. But the fact of life is we've all lived through cycles where industries that are hot, are not so much, you know, five years down the road, but that's okay. They'll come back five years later. So um, I uh, really counsel my students to say, you know, look for opportunities where you can make a difference and maybe right. help drive your company's growth regardless of what industry they're in. No one would have thought of entering the wine industry if they were kind of logical about it like Yellowtail did and, you know, look what they accomplished. So that's, uh, that's the advice I give. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call. We're joined by Leonard Sherman, the author of the book, If You're in a Dogfight, Become a Cat. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. I would imagine that for some of your students that you know are taking your classes, that it, this is a little bit of an uh, of trying to kind of wrap their hands around it, the, the, the concept of, of cat and, and you know success business. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, the, it's the, the, the whole question of, you know, what, what uh, industry do I go in? What job function do I go in? What's my great idea? I, I uh, don't know how things are uh, at Wharton, but there is clearly a growth in the number of students coming through Columbia Business School interested in entrepreneurial endeavors. Yeah. And kind of by its nature, that's, you know, being a cat in a dogfight. And it's you know, very exciting for, for me to, to see just this incredible range of 
different industries uh, and ideas uh, that are coming through. So there's there's no shortage of great new ideas, and I I always tell them don't worry about it if it's supposedly a good industry or a bad industry. Uh, one one other kind of uh, uh, on this subject, uh, I have a case study that I uh, just added last semester on the Casper Mattress Company, an online mattress company, and right. I had the CEO and two of his co-founders sitting in front of my class, and I said, hey, at what point in your lives did you decide, you know, we want to be mattress professionals. That's the dream of our life. <laughs> and, of course, they, they all chuckle and laugh, as you do. And a perfect example, there there are great ideas in all kinds of industries. So yeah. uh, let, let your imagination roam. Well, I guess that, you know, when you're talking about that, is that people will think that they have a great idea, but somehow it will get poo-pooed by somebody else or, you know, they, they, they hit a wall of some kind. It's just kind of fighting through that wall uh, to really try and bring that forward, correct? As Jeff Bezos said, I've made billions and billions of dollars on businesses that everyone told me I was crazy to enter. So yeah. <laughs> don't listen to him. It's his advice, and I think it's sound advice. It's a, it's a really good book. Thank you, Leonard. Greatly appreciate your time today. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you're in a dogfight, become a cat is the name of the book. Leonard Sherman, the author uh, at the uh, Columbia Business School, joining us here on Knowledge at Wharton. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.